Uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah chapter 3? And it's an interesting chapter simply because uh, most people read it. In fact, I was talking with Jessica and Luke earlier in the week, and they said, well, we just figured you'd skip it, you know, because it's like, it's like the genealogies and chronicles or something like that. It's like, who, re- who really reads these stuff and, you know, word for word and me? <laughs> uh, and there are, because uh, sometimes we say the devil's in the detail, but sometimes I find in Scripture the divine is in the details that we often look at, that God can speak to us powerfully. I'm not going to read the whole chapter yet, um, <clears throat> but uh, I do want to start in verse 1. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin reading verse 1, chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah? It begins, it says, Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. And they dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, the son of Imri, built next to them. Verse 3, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanaah, and they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Meremoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section, and next to him Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Mehezobel, made repairs, and next to him Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors." And the Yeshanah gate was repaired by Yoida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah. And they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. And so it repeats ten more times through the chapter. Now, we're going to see how well you, your memory works. I would like you to repeat the names of all... <laughs> Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word and its testimonies. And I ask God that as we look into this chapter and these statements, Lord, your Holy Spirit would begin to speak to us in powerful and profound ways. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We live in the day and age where a lot of times we talk about how people have these walls put up between them and, and walls are a bad thing and even though we used to say that uh, good fences made good neighbors, but the idea is somehow we need to remove all the barriers. And the problem with removing all the barriers is that our life becomes more like a highway than a place of safety and security. Let me tell you, the ancient peoples never thought in these kind of terms. In fact, they had one clear understanding, walls were good, walls were necessary. In fact, Solomon says as much in Proverbs 25, 28, uh, the Hebrew New Testament says, like a city that is broken down and without walls is a man whose spirit is without restraint. In other words, walls were designed to restrain evil when it came against a city. The taller the wall, the stronger it was, the better. But walls are really only part of the story. Just as ancient cities needed to have their walls that keep the bad guys out, they also needed to build gateways that allowed the good to come in. Which is why we find that as Nehemiah talks about the construction of the wall, again, he speaks about 10 separate gates that puncture or perforate that wall at key points to allow concourse to take place. But the problem is this also created a bigger risk dynamic. You see, gateways were not only the source of great and good things, but they also were the source of great evil. And that's true not only of a city, but it also can be true about your soul and mine as well. We understand that commodities and cultures necessary for the prosperity and the flourishing and even the happiness of a city depended upon the city gates. But so did also evil destroyers who wanted to pillage and to plunder and to persecute those who lived in the city. So consequently, when they built gates, 
they ended up being the highest, the strongest, the most impenetrable part of the city. In fact, we know from the excavations of Solomon's cities that he built that he created this thing called the triple gate. He knew that one gate was not enough. If you managed to get through one gate, you would encounter a second interior gate. And if you got through that gate, you would encounter a third interior gate. All the while, you're surrounded by soldiers with boiling pots of oil, arrows, and spears who are shooting at you as you're trying to make penetration into the city. In fact, these buildings, these parts of the walls became such points of grandeur that they became essentially the main gathering places in the city for the city's important people. In fact, when uh, we find in example, the, uh, uh, the Solomon talks about the the uh, virtuous woman. He makes a statement in Proverbs 31:23 that her husband is respected in the city gate, where he takes his seat amongst the elders of the land. In fact, one of the, in fact, the next slide that there we go is actually a picture of the the gateway that leads into the ancient city of Dan and. There was actually found a, we call the judgment seat or a pedestal. This is where the king would actually sit as people would come into the city to get judgment and settlement of causes. So even when we read about Solomon judging, we assume that he did it from the safety and the height of his palace, but it's a very real possibility that he actually sat in one of the gateways of the city because that was customarily where they would sit. In fact, the king sat on the pedestal and you see the benches next to him where the elders of the city would sit and meet with him as well. But we even find also that Jesus used the idea of gates as a way of illustrating the invincibility of the church that he was going to build upon the earth. In Matthew 16, 18, it reads, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Uh, the New Living Translation gets a, a little more contemporary or clear in its understanding where he says, all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Well, the whole idea was the gate of the city was the place of greatest strength and greatest power. And so Jesus, when he says the gates of Hades, he's talking about the most powerful weapons that Satan can create will never prevail over his church and cause it to cease its existence. But you see, gates also had their downside. This is where, quite understandably, when an enemy wanted to attack, he would focus upon the gateways of the city. And so in response, what a city under siege would do is simply lock the gates, shut them down. And this was very effective in keeping bad guys out. In the same way, if you lock the doors of your house, it makes it much more difficult for people you haven't invited to come intruding into your life. Initially, this proved effective, but in response, the enemy who was besieging a city would basically cut the city off as well. In fact, one of the things that's interesting, if you go to the city or the fortress of Masada, where the Romans, the first thing they would do, and you can still see the evidence of it there, was that they would, once the city was shut up and the doors were locked, they would build a wall around the entire city with a trench which said basically to the people in the city, we can't get in, but neither can you get out. It was really a form of psychological warfare, but the idea was you simply starve the people out until finally starvation and famine and disease began to overtake the city. And in time, the population is ravaged by these things and they surrender, eventually opening up the gates of the city to the enemy. So there was always this mad rush. The city, the kings and, and rulers of the city would be rushing to store as much food and supplies and weapons as they could in advance of the enemy incursion. And the enemy would come and stay, try to maintain the siege as long as they could till they could starve the city out on the other end. But what I want you to see in that is there's a parallel in, in human history that takes place within our lives as well. That the same way that they had walls to protect themselves, so also our lives really do need to have some clear boundaries around them. That you are not supposed to be someone whom people can simply intrude into at any time or place that they wish. 
You see, before sin entered human history, mankind did live without walls, both literally and emotionally, relationally, because there were no external dangers. Man really had no natural predator that he had to concern himself with. At least until Satan appeared in the form of a certain serpent and deceived our first parents. And as soon as they sinned, the world became a dangerous place. Not only dangerous because we know that death and disease entered into the human condition, but and not simply because there was physical hardship in life, because God said from this point on, man will live by the sweat of his brows. Another way of saying there's never going to be a free lunch despite what they tell you. But there was also relationship danger. As man became disconnected from God, we see that Adam and Eve start becoming disconnected with one another. The first thing we read about in chapter 3 is they begin to lie, they begin to blame, they begin to excuse themselves for the inexcusable, and most importantly, they begin hiding themselves first from God and eventually from one another. So that to this very day, most of us live a degree of our life in hiding, a parts of ourselves that we keep hidden from the rest of the world, which don't misunderstand me, I don't think is totally wrong. You're not required to be so transparent that there's nothing about you that other people don't know. But at the same time, there is a isolation that begins to pay, take place. And soon after we see men begin to go through this relational deterioration and degeneration, what enters in are the consequences. We have murder, we have adultery, we have conflicts, we have warfare, and society begins to dissemble until finally God basically puts an end to the world through Noah and starts all over again, only to see the pattern being repeated millennia after millennia up to the present time. One of mankind's response to these kind of problems was to build cities with protective walls around them. And we know that from the archaeologists' research, this was a process. They started by first gathering in small groups, living together for self-protection, but they soon discovered that just simply living together was not enough, so they built walls around their cities, and they had to build bigger and higher and stronger walls as time goes on. But even behind those walls, people soon had to learn how to protect themselves relationally. After all, relational hurt is a normal part of living in a sinful world. That's why we have that little adage, hurt people, hurt people. <laughs> you know, hurt people. When you're hurting, you do and say things that are hurtful. We all do it. Let's not pretend we don't. In fact, I just caught myself in the very act last week when I was really kind of feeling down and discouraged, and I found my wife, myself snapping at my wife over something that was really pretty petty and silly and wasn't worth the value of a snap. You know, and you sit there and go, why am I doing this? Well, if you're feeling hurt on the inside, you just kind of bubble over, don't you? So in the life of a Christian, you find that you are an artesian well. James said, sometimes it's sweet water, sometimes it's bitter water. Jesus said, let living waters flow out of you. But I tell you the truth, there are times when what's flowing out of you really should be going down a sewer pipe and not out through the fountain, right? That's the nature of human relationships. And it didn't take long for people to begin to put this together. In fact, I think it happened 20 minutes after they were kicked out of the garden. They began to realize, I can see Adam and Eve walking out of the garden. It's your fault. If you hadn't have done this, no, I, I, it's, it's what we do. It's the way human nature functions, sadly. But as we saw last week, there is a serious level to this problem as well. There are some people who have taken hurting to a major league level. It is for them intentional. We talked about Sanbalat, the, the uh, destroyer, this narcissistic sociopath, people who really lie and cheat and steal and harm and humiliate others for their own selfish advantage and really never feel bad at all about it because they never see it as being their problem, it's yours problem. 
They have one goal. They want to conquer and then control. And then when you are used up and no longer useful to them, they will cast you off. Well, the normal response of people like you and me to these kind of threats is to react when we feel like our life is under siege. And what we do is we too start closing the gateways into our souls, into our hearts. One by one, we may eventually close off ourselves so as a person, relationally, we become less and less accessible, less and less available to other people because we are seeking to find safety in isolation. We may even decide to simply wall up all the great gateways in our life. I think about the, the great golden gate, uh, the eastern gate in Jerusalem that once was an entryway right into the temple. As you sit at the base of the Kidron Valley, you see this beautiful gatehouse which extends quite a ways back behind the wall, and yet it's been completely closed up because the Muslims decided that the Messiah was going to come through the eastern gate when he returned. And so to prevent that from happening, they just closed the gate. Because after all, when the Messiah comes down from heaven, puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, splits the Mount of Olives and creates a waterway all the way to the Dead Sea, from, to the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea, he certainly wouldn't be powerful enough to punch through those stones. So, I mean, I get it. It makes lots of sense. But I say this more by illustration, I hope you understand, that you and I can do similar things. We begin to close ourselves off. You know, we have little sayings like, uh, first time, shame on you, second time, shame on me. Or, you know, there was a, a former politician who said, well, they're not going to have me to kick around anymore. You know? And, you know, he walked away into his helicopter very mad and angry. And the truth of the matter is, that is, again, a natural response. Whether we are responding to grief or trauma or loss or even just hurtful behavior, it's normal for us to go away when we're wounded and simply find a protected, safe place where we can hide. But it comes at a high price. You see, walls without gates is just another name for a prison. And many people are imprisoned by their own hurts and the fear that they have of those hurts being returned. Paul Simon in his classic song, I Am a Rock, lyricized the dynamic better than anybody I've ever read, really. Let me just read again to those of you who, who don't know, the two of you who have never heard this, and those of you who have had, would you please resist humming along? Uh, okay. But he writes, I am a rock, I am an island. And then he says, I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship because friendships cause pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. Don't talk of love. I've heard the word before. It's sleeping somewhere in my memory. It won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved I never would have cried. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock and I am an island and a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. The problem with these words and the sentiment it communicates is that God hardwired you and I for relationships. When God created the heavens and the earth and He said everything is good, it's not until we get to verse 18 of chapter 2 for the first time He says that something is not good. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. And I love the way the NLT puts it. It says, I will make an indispensable companion for him indispensable. It's not something that we can choose or not choose. It's not something we can say, yes, I want it, or no, I don't need it. It is indispensable. You need relationships. You crave and yearn for them so that intimate relationships are not optional. They are instant, indispensable. In fact, Solomon commenting on the man or woman who doesn't have that in his life made this comment in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. He says, I saw something under the sun, a man all alone. 
This is a miserable business, he writes. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. John Townsend, in his book, Hiding from Love, reiterates the point when he simply said, connectedness, implying connectedness to other people, is our most basic need. Isolation, our most injurious state. This law of physics states that the things that are isolated move towards deterioration. There is no life without relationships. Connection is necessary for survival. Now, as a Christian, what I understand is that's why I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Because without being connected to God, I am deteriorating as an individual. And even as a Christian with Christ living in my heart, do we not have those experiences when we begin to become tardy in certain connections with God? We stop having quiet times with the Lord. We stop reading. We stop praying. We start go stop going to church. We stop talking to people who have that same spiritual commitment and orientation and value system as we do. That when we stop those kind of things, we begin to isolate ourselves, we begin to deteriorate emotionally. We become bitter, critical, angry, judgmental, faulting, and all the angry people and all the rest that goes with that. And so we have to understand that the protagonist against our soul, that Satan himself is always in the effort of trying to create isolation to cause an offense so that there's separation. Why do you think Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate? Because he understands that marriage itself is designed by God to be the most vital connection that we will experience in life. And the enemy is always working overtime to create dynamics that break that apart because he knows it will cause your life to deteriorate. As medical science has proven and demonstrated, it actually happens to people who go through broken marriage relationships. And even within the community of church, is there anything that Satan wants to oppose more than Christians being in fellowship with one another? Is it surprising that in Proverbs 6, Solomon would write, speaking, I believe, by the Spirit of God, he says, this one thing that God hates more than everything else, he who causes discord amongst the brethren. I mean, it's not just simply, can't we all get, just get along? It's the idea that there is this neediness that is foundational to each of us to be intimately and meaningfully connected with other people in a life-giving way. And there's the caveat. The most essential connection that we can ever have, and we can't really survive eternally without it, is being connected by God and to God. That's why a man or woman makes a decision to ask Christ into their life, that I might become adopted and thereby connected into the family of God. I become an eternal participant in what God has planned for all of eternity, as well is in this moment in time. But it is also God's intent within the dynamic of the Christian life that our relationship with Him should produce healthy, redemptive relationships with other people. So essential that Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says this, the body, speaking of the body of Christ, is a unit made up of many parts. There should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And then he explains why. Because if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. That's a physical principle of the universe and not just simply limited to machines or computers, or things of that nature. God has created everything with, for this essential interconnectedness. And without it, if one part of this begins to break down and suffer, it ripples in its effect across the universe in ways that, granted, you and I may not see, appreciate, and therefore really worry about. But it's true. That's why Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Because what are peacemakers? Peacemakers are relationship menders, not relationship breakers. 
So we have this diabolical force called the powers of darkness, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, and whatever other name you want to call it, as long as it's not profane. You have this character who is working all the time to create division and strife and break people apart. So much so that Scripture just simply says, when that's going on, you know that the devil is busily at work. And you have the Spirit of God on the other side who's saying, I call you to be peacemakers. Having a conversation with some Russian and Ukrainian friends, you know, uh, last week, and they were making an interesting comment because they were talking about the division that's even happening in many of our local Russian churches because some of the people in the church are from Ukraine, some are from Russia, and they actually have had cases where people are getting in fistfights in the parking lot. Yeah, well, we do that if you're not a Seahawk fan, too. But uh, <laughs> don't wear that Green Bay jersey in here. Anyway, so, you know, but, and you know, it's, it's like, it's like all warfare and all conflict. Pascal said, the craziness of it is you kill the man who lives across the river because he's your enemy, and then he becomes a hero for doing so, but he becomes a villain on the other side of the river. And it's this idea that in the end, God says, blessed are the peacemakers, that what we in conflict should never pray is that God will be on one side versus the other. It's interesting, when I was in Volgograd, Russia, some years ago, and I went in this second-hand store, and I wish I had bought it, but I was sure at the moment I could get it cheaper on eBay and was fooled. Um, but it was a, a German soldier uh, um, uh, belt buckle from his uniform. And I was fascinated by this bronze buckle because what was inscribed on it in German was Gott mit uns. In other words, God is with us. So here's the Nazi Wehrmacht marching across, killing and plundering and murdering, wearing a belt buckle declaring, God's on our side. And you realize that God probably is not on their side. But nonetheless, what we can do is we can begin to baptize and honor things that are divisive and destructive as if they're expressions of godliness when God says, no, I bless the peacemakers. I bless those who try to bridge the gaps, not those who try to create them. But if all of that is true, and if that's really where God wants us to be, why is it so hard to connect with other people, even with other Christians, with your husband or your wife or even family members? Why is there so much division and strife? Well, first of all, let me say that Emotionally speaking, there are two things that you and I have as basic fundamental needs. Number one, we need to be truly, and if not fully, known by other people. The idea that we can relax and not have to pretend. I remember one of the real pleasures that I began to experience when my wife and I were first married was the ability to tell her things about myself that I had been too embarrassed or ashamed to tell anybody about prior to that time. And to have the response of her not hating me, but loving me. So that we need to be fully known, but we also need to be fully loved. Those two things need to go together. And that's what everyone in this room really desires and craves. That's when we talk about family or we talk about the church or any of these kind of things. We talk about, I want to be fully known and I want to be fully loved. In reality, there's only one place that happens completely, and that's in your relationship with God. Because He says, I know everything about you. There are no secrets. It's amazing that we don't really embrace that more deeply because that's really what the devotional prayer life is all about. I know that every morning I can get up, every evening I go to bed, and in all sorts of juncture points in between, I can honestly say to God, look what's going on inside of me right now. <laughs> and I'm cutting the lawn yesterday. I suddenly realized this conversation going on in my head that wasn't God-honoring. Oh, it was me honoring. I was the hero of my thought life. But it, as I looked at what I was thinking in the light of eternity, in the light of Scripture, it wasn't heroic. 
even though I wanted to make my life to be the hero. It wasn't heroic thoughts, at least that God would honor. And I had to simply say, Lord, look what I'm thinking right now. Would you please remove this thought path from my life? And let me think things that are true of you. What did he say in the Philippians chapter 4? Things that are true, things that are noble, things that are admirable, things that are good. And he goes through this list of nine different things that it should be. And as I was going through the list, I thought, these thoughts don't fit anywhere in this list. God knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. There's no secrets. There's nothing to pretend, to hide, to try to disguise. Now, that doesn't mean you should tell me about them. You know, that's where some people don't have the balance in their life. But here, the idea that God fully knows me, but what's really wonderful isn't just that God knows you, but He fully loves you. He loves you just the way it is. One of my favorite quotes from Max Lucado is that God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. God is a change agent, you know, that's what He does, but nonetheless, it's change to grow, not change to destroy, and He wants us to be imitators of that. He wants us to be striving in our relational dynamics in our life where as we come to fully know the people around us, and that doesn't happen immediately, that takes a long time to develop that kind of depth of honesty and relationship, but as we do and we fully know somebody, that that doesn't change the texture or the dynamic of our love for that person. Because the long and short of it is that we can never say that we truly love somebody until we've had to forgive them numerous times, sometimes 70 times 7. Unfortunately, in this life, most of us only get one of the two, which can be very damaging to your sense of yourself and the sense of your own worth. You see, to be known but not loved means to be exposed. And that's the experience that many of us have had. We've had the opportunity to be exposed, uh, to be outed, to, to be pilloried, mocked, ridiculed because of something uh, perceived or your sin or your weakness. We, we point it out, we make a, an issue of it, and usually it's done by people who are so terrified, live in such dread that their own dirty laundry is going to be aired that they strike before they're struck. Mark Twain once said, everyone is a moon and has a dark side that he never shows to anybody. Every one of us is like a moon that has a dark side that he never shows to anybody. I would not totally disagree because I think the problem is that if we don't show our dark side to other people sometimes, then we never really have the chance to forge really deep, meaningful relationships with them. But until somebody can love you in spite of, not because of, their love is very conditional and very shallow. Conversely, to be loved but not known is to become nothing more than a mere object for someone else's pleasure. You see, you're just some other toy that they fiddle with in their sandbox. You're a commodity to be used until your usefulness is all used up. And so how do we know who to let pass through the gateways of our lives? Who do we allow to have entrance to the tenderest, most sensitive parts of our soul? Well, I call it, how do I build redemptive relationships? How do I go about doing that? And I have three points, and I want to really expand on the third. But the first reason, thing I say is, if you really want to have a redemptive relationship, it begins by being friendly, <laughs> In Proverbs 18.24, at least in the New King James Version, it reads, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. That's kind of like common sense, right? You know, some people don't put off a friendly vibe. I remember years ago, uh, Gary Larson in one of his cartoons had these four squares, and he said, Na nature's natural warning signs, and the first one was a, a dog snarling, the second one was a cat with its back up and, you know, ready to pounce, and I forget what the third one was, but I'll never forget the fourth one. The fourth one was a man with a rubber boot on his head with a shotgun in his hand. 
And I thought, yeah, you meet that guy in the mall, you just give him plenty of room. And that's the whole point. We, we understand that, that if you have an unfriendly demeanor, you're not going to have much luck in being friendly. And more than that, it's the idea of not living your life in isolation from other people. You don't build redemptive relationships by not having anything other than superficial relationships. And in order to have a deeper relationship with other people, you have to engage with other people on some level. That's why we're talking about Wednesday night having this connect thing, you know, or the connect meeting on Monday night. The idea that as you participate and engage, simply become present and accounted for when role is called, you create the dynamic in which meaningful relationship has a chance to get started. But if your option is to stay home and watch TV, um, you may think you're connecting with those characters, <laughs> but they really don't know you exist. If you've turned to pornography as a way to try to satisfy your intimate needs, you are building into even a greater fantasy and addiction that will never really go there. You'll never really know intimacy or closeness. And any number of things that you might engage in as a way of trying to satisfy that deep yearning in you will only be a temporary fix from some different kind of drug that will wear off very quickly and will require a heavier and heavier dosage just to get the same or even close to the same former experience. No, you have to be in contact with real people in real time, in real ways. But secondly, you have to be resilient. <laughs> And not become bitter. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And in Ephesians 4, Paul says in 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. There has to be a resiliency in you because what you find is you begin to engage with people. I find people in proximity produce problems. I almost couldn't say it. <laughs> People in proximity produce problems with peas. That's just, a, that's just a fact of life. And so that if you're going to be friendly, if you're going to be in relationship, you're going to find that there's going to be lots of occasions to say, I forgive you, and probably even more occasions to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. And if that's not something that you feel is in your wheelhouse, then go back and start with point one again because you'll never be able to change the dynamics of your life. It's an interesting culture we live in. It's an isolated culture that holds grudges. We're an isolated culture that holds grudges. We're more about exposing than expressing. And then we wake up every morning or go to bed every night and wonder, why do I feel so isolated and alone, and ineffectual. Well, let me get to the, the third thing, because I think that you need to be caring, but you need to be cautious. And that's why my third thing is that if you want to have redemptive relationships, you have to pick safe relationships. And it goes both ways. You need to pick people who are safe, and you need to be safe. And by saying that, I am saying out loud, some people don't know how to be safe yet. There is a small percentage, one out of 20 people, sociopathic narcissists, who are never safe, never will be safe, and the only thing you can really do is to put as much space between you and them and just pray that God somehow penetrates their soul. But nonetheless, in terms of other people, there is this safety factor that every one of us needs to be cautious in relationships we need to be caring, but we need to caution. We need to take our time. And that's why, how do we, what are the characteristics then that we look for in what we would call safe people? Let me give you my list. You may add to it, take away from it, but I don't think you'll disagree with me. That first of all, a safe person keeps confidences. They're not gossipers, they're not slanders. Now, interesting, the word slander as it's used in the New Testament doesn't mean that they say something about you that's not true. Actually, what somebody may be saying about you could be completely true. 
but it's said for the purpose of besmirching or diminishing you as a person. It's really easy to know things about other people and say, well, I know you don't know, but let me just tell you the inside story. That's slander. It's, it's biblically prohibited. doesn't keep us from doing it, but nonetheless, we know it. In fact, in Proverbs eleven thirteen, it says, a gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. In 79, he says, he who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Now, every one of us would say, amen, and so be it to those verses. But let me ask you, how good are you are actually doing that? How often do you try to jumpstart a stalled conversation by throwing in some kind of tidbit about somebody, some kind of titillating bit of information? I mean, even on a grand scale, when we talk about the celebrity culture we live in, you know what's really kind of sad isn't that we have all these celebrities. What's really sad is how we love to destroy them and we love those reports and those stories and those things that go out there besmirching their character and accusing them of all sorts of nefarious deeds. I say that because I think we need to step back and take a look. As we're watching the news and, you know, and, and hearing different people on there, talking heads, talking about this is the latest and going on, we're buying into a way of thinking about the world around us that I think is unhealthy and leads to a predatory, cannibalistic culture. Paul said to the Galatians, if you bite and devour one another, you will be consumed by one another. And we live in a culture that's just eating itself alive. We're not just cannibalizing each other. We're sitting there chewing on our own foot and watching the culture collapse around us. A safe person is someone whom you can tell something that's deep in your heart and they keep it. But secondly, a safe person is imperfect, but they're consistent. In other words, in Proverbs 17, 7, Solomon said, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. That there's a consistency, not a perfection, but there is a consistency in how they go forward in their life. One of the things that Paul said with regards to spiritual leaders in 1 Timothy 3, he said, a elder, a a pastor, a spiritual leader, must be without blame. It doesn't say, mean that he has to be perfect because that person never existed outside of Jesus, but it means he doesn't leave a laundry list of unfulfilled commitments and obligations. They're not a person who promises to do things that they don't do. They're not a person who's all over the board in terms of you never quite know what you're going to get. Life is always an uncomfortable surprise. There are people who struggle with the same things you struggle with, and that's part of the connection, isn't it? Paul said in writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, he said, we comfort one another with a comfort whereby we have been comforted by God. We, in other words, really connect with people saying, I know what you feel. In fact, there was one politician who used that to his advantage. He became president. He says, I feel your pain. I've held little crack babies in my arms. I don't think so. But the whole point is we radiate to people who understand the battle that we're going through, the issue we're struggling, that place in life we're in, who've experienced the traumas, the hurts, the woundings, the devastation, the destruction. They, we, we identify with those people because they're people who hear what we're saying, not just hear what we're saying. In Shadowlands, C.S. Lewis asked one of his young students why he uh, did what he, why he wrote, what was his passion, what drove him to write his novels. And he said, I write so that I will not feel like I'm alone. I write so that I won't feel like I'm alone. That's a profound thing. In other words, if people read what I write and understand and, and, and enter into what I'm saying and experience it, they're experiencing me. I am no longer alone, but I have someone that I'm sharing my life with. Safe people are people that you can do that with. Thirdly, safe people care enough to confront. One of the dynamics of a narcissist is that whenever you talk with them, they always make you feel good because flattery and love bombing is part of their technique of getting into the inner control center of your life. 
But Proverbs says just the opposite about a friend. It says in Proverbs 27, 6, a wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, they tell you the truth. Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth one to another in love. They tell you the truth about what's going on, or at least how they see the truth. But a narcissist or a selfish person or unsafe person will never do that because what they don't want to do is to fix you or help you grow. What they want to do is control and manipulate you. In fact, in Proverbs 27, 17, he says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. People that see the world through a different lens than you and I are not enemies. They're people who bring different perspectives. And that brings a sharpening into our lives. And people who come to us and say, you know, I love you, but here's what I see in your life that concerns me, are friends. That's what friendship does. That's, those are safe people. And especially if they're willing to walk with you through that process. That fourthly, safe people respect no. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus in Matthew 5.37 said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And anything beyond this, he says, comes from the evil one. In a sense, what we need to do is learn as Christians to say yes to whatever God is saying yes to. If there's a yes, a green light in our life, we need to say, yes, God, I'll, I'll respond. Now, granted, for many of us and regarding certain situations, it may take us a season to warm up to the yes answer. I mean, we'll look at it and just not real excited to go down this journey, but that's a healthy thing. Nonetheless, because the predisposition, the inner attitude of your heart is, I want to say yes, I'm just afraid to say it, that's good. Don't beat yourself up for that. At least you're pointed in the right direction, which also means that we need to say no to anything that God says no to. Because what that comes down to is learning how to be true to who God made you to be. I love to tell the story of my my, in fact, he, my father-in-law was just repeating it to me the other day as we were talking on the phone about when he was a young Christian going to this church and he said uh, some prophet in the church came up to him and said, Brother Tom, God told me he's called you to preach the Word of God. Now, some of you know my father-in-law, sweetest, gentlest, kindest man you'd ever want to know. <laughs> But oratory is not one of his gifts or his callings. But honesty, that he's got going for him. His response to this man was, wow, wonder why he didn't tell me. <laughs> Tom knew this. I would not be true to myself if I started studying for the pastoral ministry. That's not who I am. That's not who God created me to be. And it's important that we understand, and that's part of the life experience, is we learn what we're good at and what we're not good at. We know what we can do well and what we probably should avoid at all cost. But that's part of the process, and we begin to understand, this is what I'm called to be. And when somebody is trying to get you to do something that you know, not just morally wrong, that's obvious, or even ethically wrong, that should be obvious too, but something that is just outside of who God made you to be, you need to be able to say, no, that's not really for me. In fact, Howard Hendricks once said to pastors, you can define a man's ministry more by the things he says no to than the things he says yes to. You see, safe people will love and respect you for saying no to what's not right for you, even if it's something they want you to do. And you say, you know, it's not the right thing. To learn to say no, because that's where the control of the gateways of your soul really become major. Too many of us are such addicted people pleasers that we never say no to the wrong things that people in our life push on us. And so in an effort to maintain a relationship, our soul is screaming no, but our body is saying yes. That's not a safe person. And when that person gets angry with you because you say no to something they want, they're not a safe person anymore. Lastly, safe people direct you to Jesus. Proverbs 12, 26 says, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor. 
In other words, the same person that you approach with a question saying, I'm struggling with this and this, and what do you think? Their first response is going to be, let's pray and ask God to show us what He wants instead of just simply telling you what you want or what He wants or she wants. What is God's will? That becomes the driving passion. Let's make sure that we are positioning ourselves always in that place that is in direct agreement with God's will for our life. When you do that, you become safe, and the people that you are engaged with become safe as well. But again, I would reiterate, last of all, the most important thing in life is not to shut down and seal up the gateways of your life. I would guess that, just given the way the world is, that in this room there are, every one of us has certain gates that are closed. Areas and things that we've gone through, we said, no, <laughs> not going to allow that to be there in my life at all. That's not happening. And you're probably being robbed of something. The idea is not to close the gate. The idea is knowing how to manage and to guard the gate to let the good stuff in and keep the bad stuff out. That's how we manage our life in a way that becomes sane and controlled. That we're not people who have no boundaries, no walls. We just let ourselves being run over <laughs> where we have no restraint, no control in our life whether it's from ourselves or coming from the outside, but we're just victimized by whatever life happens to bring our way. We have to learn how to say no to the things that should not be there if we're going to have stability and sanity in our life. And some of you are going to need to do that. There's probably things on your, in front of you right now where the answer you know in your heart is, no, it's not the right thing for me to do. I'm not going there. And there's some things you should be saying yes to that you're afraid to or you're even getting pressure from other people not to say yes to. But in the end of the day, you know, you have to give account for the way you have lived your life. The choices that you have made, the decisions you've made. You are the one who's in charge of the city called you. And you need to make that a safe place. And you need to enter into relationships with people who are safe. And that's all I have to say about that, unless I think of something else. <laughs> Father, I pray that you'd help us to hear these things. We live in a, in a dangerous world. It's always been dangerous. But it's not a safe world. But you said to us in your word that safety comes from the Lord. And so I pray, God, that as we can talk about these things and we contemplate where wisdom is found in your will, that we would be a caring people, but we would also have really a holy caution, Lord, that we wouldn't be careless, but we would be careful. And I pray, God, that you would bless us by your grace and guide us by your hand and grant us your wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.